Welcome to the Trip Anthropologist podcast, where together we travel thoughtfully around the world, hear fun and fascinating conversations featuring locals and experts about the history and culture of your next travel destination. Be inspired and amazed at some of the world's most intriguing and iconic locations. So, pack your curiosity, fasten your seatbelt, and get ready as we take off for this week's adventure with your host, award-winning anthropologist, Monique Skidmore. Hello, travellers, and welcome to the Trip Anthropologist podcast. Each week, we're taking off on a trip to some of the most exciting or unusual destinations in the world. I can promise you that I'm just as curious as you are, so together we'll explore the history and culture of the world one trip at a time. Today we're off to experience the antiquity, myths and realities of some of the world's oldest and most significant monuments. These monuments are scattered all over the top and the sides of an enormous rock called the Acropolis of Athens. I'll be talking with an Athens tour guide, but not just any tour guide. Danai Kusuras is trained in storytelling. When the innovative travel company Alternative Athens wanted to show visitors to Athens why Greek history and culture is so fascinating, they turned to Danai to write their Greek mythology tours. We'll be hearing from Danai about what the ancient Greeks believed was going on up at the Acropolis, while mere Athenian mortals were going about their daily lives down below. The capital of Greece feels like a megacity, teeming streets, an enormous port, and millions of tourists a year but there are only about 665,000 Athenians. Part of the reason I feel that Athens gives the feeling of being one of the world's big cities is because of the view from the top of the Acropolis of Athens over this ancient city. Or perhaps it's the grandeur and age of its monuments, or the sheer vitality and vividness of Greek people, food, culture and daily life. Whatever causes this feeling, arriving in Athens is always exciting, and I'm not the only one who feels like this. For over 3,000 years, people have been feeling excited about entering Athens. Unfortunately, many of them weren't there to have a good time and get on well with the locals. They were there to invade, loot and pillage, wage war, conquer, destroy and steal stuff. It's no wonder the ancient Greeks retreated to the top of the enormous steep-sided rock called the Acropolis in the middle of the city. The Acropolis has been fortified for many, many years now. But no matter how steep the sides of the Acropolis and how mighty its walls, the city was vanquished several times over. But it just feels like there's only one war that really seems to have ticked off the ancient Greeks. The Greco-Persian Wars, when they were finally over, left Athenians wanting to build eternal monuments to celebrate their democracy, civilization, and arts. And so 2,500 years ago, a guy called Pericles ordered the best Greek architects sculptors, builders, and craftsmen to get busy building monuments on the Acropolis. And so today we see some impressive ruined buildings like the Propylia, the Parthenon, the Temple of Athena Nike, the Erechtheion, and the Theatre of Dionysus. But they weren't always like that. And to understand why they built what they did, you have to understand what ancient Greeks believed happened at the Acropolis. Because the Acropolis was the place of the gods. It was where they hung out, where they battled, and where mortals paid their respects to the gods. 
So in order to find out what happened on the Acropolis, according to the ancient Greeks, I turned to professional storyteller Danai Kosuris. Danai, welcome to Trip Anthropologist podcast series. Can you tell us, Danai, about your name? And I'd also like to hear a little bit about the names of your children. <laughs> Hello. Thank you for the invitation, Monique. My father was fond of mythology and history, and he decided to name me and my sister after mythical personalities. So I was named after a mythical princess, Danai, from Argos. She had an affair with Zeus, the king of the gods, and she gave birth to one of the most famous heroes of antiquity, Perseus, or maybe you know him as Percy. He's the hero who killed the notorious Medusa. Keeping the family tradition, I gave to my children ancient names as well. My son's name is Orpheus, a mythical musician who had the ability to charm all living creatures and the ancient universe. And my daughter's name is Cleo, one of the nine muses, protectors of history and storytelling. And although I'm sure you think I'm a mythology geek, (laughs) the thing is that ancient Greek mythology is so much part of our cultural DNA. So a great percentage of Greeks have ancient names. You go in a cafe here in Athens and you might be served by an Achilles or an (laughs) Aphrodite. And Danai, you're a professional storyteller, a recounter of myths and legends, and you've just answered half my next question. What makes you so uniquely qualified to talk about the myths and legends of Athens? Mythology is a group of stories I grew up with, bedtime stories. Later, these stories that my parents used to narrate it to me in a very simple and emotional way became an integral part of my studies. I studied history and archaeology in the University of Athens, and I also graduated from the National School of Guides. There is no way to learn and understand the ancient Greek history and art without referring to mythology. What is it then about the mythology of ancient Athens and about the Acropolis that's so important to you? Well, it's amazing how mythology can give life to the ruins of the Acropolis. The temples were decorated with mythical stories that introduced the visitor to the reason of their existence. What is the message of the ancient Athenians wanted to pass to the rest of the world? What was their source of inspiration? What did the building stand for? Any approach you choose to follow in order to study them, historical, cultural, artistic, sociological, mythology is your base. There are dozens of tour operators running tours to the Acropolis. Why did you choose to work for Alternative Athens? I hope it's not a trick question, right? (laughs) I don't think so. I love their philosophy of traveling, to Mm. be honest. Tina Kiriakis, who is the founder of the company, is a very sharp and resourceful woman who has a vision to present Athens and Greece in an authentic way, to engage the travelers with the local communities and to offer a more memorable experience. So the company treats people as travelers, not tourists, and treats the guides as partners, (laughs) not employees, just employees. The groups are small, so I can interact with the participants to get to know them. The tours are thematic. They have an original narrative, which is far from a stiff sharing of data and information. And I really, really enjoy going to work. It's like (laughs) I am with friends and I show them around discussing stuff we all like. So let's now then 
take a tour with you to the Acropolis. Mm -hmm. So for the last two and a half thousand years, visitors, tourists, travellers, they've all walked up and panted their way up the Acropolis Hill to come to the great entrance to the Acropolis, the Propylia. But before this impressive entranceway is a small temple. Why is there a tiny temple of Athena Nike jutting out from the entrance of the Acropolis? Goddess Athena, being the goddess of wisdom and war strategy, in this temple is worshipped as the goddess who helps the Athenians to be victorious. She stands by them in time of war, and she helps them to prevail in the battlefields. To be more specific, the Athenians depicted on the temple one of the most defining battles of their history, the marathon battle against the Persians. It is the battle when the unexpected happened. The tiny little Athenian army defeated for the first time the huge, powerful Persian army. The thing is that many battles followed after that. It's a war that lasted for approximately 15 years. The Athenians became the leaders of a Greek league, and the Greeks all together, for the first time as an ethnic unit, fought in order to protect their territory. At the end of the war, the Greeks prevailed. The Athenians were the leaders of the Greeks. So many years later, approximately 30 years after the end of the war, and since Anthes was looted during the war, the Athenians, under the leadership of Pericles, decided to apply a constructive plan on the top of the Acropolis. Three temples, one central gateway all dedicated to goddess Athena, who helped them during the war. Now, the interesting part is the location of the temple of Athena Nike. It is located outside of the central gate, and it is the first thing a visitor sees while climbing the Acropolis. And it's up there, Athena Nike, wingless, that means the cult statue of Athena has no wings because all Nikes had wings in antiquity and Greek mythology. But Athena and victory is actually trapped in this territory. So it's a clear message to the rest of the world. Beware enemies and friends, because with her, we're always victorious. Ah, and that makes sense then why it's right at the front there so that everyone can see it. Exactly. Okay, so the Temple of Athena Nike is just sitting out from the Propylaea, and the Propylaea is about as impressive an entrance as you can get anywhere in the world. It's built atop the steepest cliffside of the Acropolis, and it seems like an excellent place if you're intent on committing suicide or throwing yourself off the Acropolis. Was that tried in ancient Greece? Yes, this has happened many times in real life. But only one time in mythology. And that's the one we're interested in. Yes, that's the story of King Aegeus. Mm. The king of Athens, his son is Theseus, a top-notch hero of the city. He sailed to Crete in order to kill the Minotaur. The Athenian ship had sailed Athens in black sails. But before he goes, Theseus gave a promise to his father to change the sails in white in case his mission is accomplished and if he survives. So the father, Aegeus, is waiting on the top of the Acropolis. Even the modern visitor of the Acropolis, if he turns his back to the Propylaea, has a clear view of the port of Athens. So he can feel the agony of Aegeus waiting for his son. 
Theseus goes to Crete, he enters the labyrinth, he kills the beast, and he's on his way back to Athens. And there is a real celebration on the ship. Wine dances, you get the picture, right? And they forgot to change the sails. Aegeus stares the sea, and he sees the Athenian ship returning in black sails. He thought his son is dead, and he finds no other reason to continue with his life. He fell off the cliff, and he died. The body of water you see from the top of the Acropolis is named the Aegean Sea in order to honour him, so nobody would ever forget his story. Well, after that sad story about Greeks who were having too good a time on the boat and simply forgot to change the sails, let's go through the Acropolis and come to the flat top of the Acropolis. So to our immediate right is one of the world's most incredible buildings, the Parthenon. And to the left is the building that you described to me as that cute little erectile. So let's start with the magnificent Parthenon. Can you tell us briefly, what are the figures of Greek mythology that we can see in those friezes along the top of the Parthenon and above the columns? Well, the site we see once we cross the Propylaea is the western part, let's say the back side of the temple. So on the very top, the Athenians decided to depict the story of Athena and Poseidon, but we'll come back to this story later. The most important part of the temple is the eastern part. And there we have the story of the birth of goddess Athena. All gods arranged. In the center, we have Zeus on the throne, Athena on his side. A level down, we have what we call the metapis in archaeology, square panels with reliefs depicting mythical battles, Amazons against the Athenians, the Trojan War, the centaurs against the Labids. It's the struggle what is represented there, the eternal human struggle against the forces of nature and the enemies. Inside... Behind the columns, on the top of the external wall of the temple, we have the Panathenaic procession, which was a real event in ancient Athens, celebrating the birthday of goddess Athena, a great procession. The whole society participated, climbing up the Acropolis, offering gifts to their goddess. And a lot went on in the Parthenon. So as a political monument, There's one central myth, though, that explains the importance of the Parthenon to Greece and to Athens. Can you tell us what that myth is? It's definitely the story of the birth of goddess Athena. So according to the story, it's Zeus, the father of Athena, who was informed by a prophecy that the child his wife has, at that time his wife was Metis, not Hera yet, would give him a grandson that eventually will dethrone him and kill him, so he will lose his power. And do you understand he didn't like that? So he tries to find a way to eliminate the danger. This is a titan, so she cannot die. So he has to find another way. He had a plan. One day he enters into her room with an idea. Darling, he said, let's play the transformation game. Can you change your form three times in three different things? And innocent Mises responded, yes, of course, said, well, look at me. And one time he became a big brown bear. The next time he became a river. The third time he became a tiny little fly. And as a fly, she was flying around Zeus' head, tilting him. But when the time was right, Zeus 
opens his mouth and ate the flower. Problem solved, right? He ate her. <laughs> Not at all. A few months later, he suffered from terrible headache. So he asked for help. And his son, Hephaestus, runs with his axe and cracks this head. And out of the opening of his head, we have a goddess, goddess Athena, an adult in full armor. And this is the moment that is captured by the ancient sculptors. So in the center of this pediment, we have Zeus looking on his daughter for the first time face to face. And Athena noticed that her father is not happy with her existence. And she asked the reason. And Zeus told her about the prophecy. And this is the moment that Athena promised her father to stay forever a virgin goddess, a maiden. She will never have a husband or a child in her life. And the Greek word for virgin is Parthenos. And this is the reason why the name of the temple is the Parthenon, because it's the house of the maiden. So beautifully described. They're really quite complex stories. And you've done a wonderful <laughs> job of getting us right to the actual name of the Parthenon. Well, the bottom line of this story is that it's not by chance we have the birth of Athena as a central myth of the Parthenon. Because remember, these temples were built after the Persian War. It's the beginning of the golden age of Athens. A new goddess is born. A new era begins for the city. So Athena, as a maiden, as a virgin goddess, her virginity, she is responsible to bring harmony and balance in people's life. And this is what the ancient Athenians wanted to reflect. It is a temple built by democratic decision. It represents democracy, and democracy is what brings harmony and balance in people's life. And when we've got this beautiful, enormous building that is just so impressive, you then turn to your left and you see an odd but lovely but odd and small building that seems a little out of scale compared to the Parthenon. This is the Erechtheion. And it's got a couple of odd parts about it. So it has a porch of the maidens facing the Parthenon, but it's also the site of an epic battle. So could we start with the porch? Tell me something about why we have these draped figures of women on this tiny little porch outside this very odd little building. The amazing Cariatids, as they are known. We have many interpretations about these girls, but the most prevailed one is the one that explains that these girls were the daughters of a mythical king called Kekrabs. So according to the myth, this legendary king was buried on this very ground. So when the Athenians built the Erechtheion, they decided to incorporate his grave to the original temple. And... Over his grave, they created this porch that instead of columns, they put these female statues of amazing beauty. Girls originally holding vessels on their hands. The vessels had sacred liquids, let's say wine or olive oil, and holes on the bottom. So the liquid dripped on the ground. This is a religious ceremony. It's paying libation, pouring libation to the dead king, but also to the dead of, of the city. My favorite thing about the Erechtheion is the battle between two gods. Can you tell us why the Erechtheion looks the way it does? 
That's a very good question. Well, the erection, we can safely tell that it has a three-partite division. It's the balcony with the maidens dedicated to Kekrops. The central room is dedicated to Athena. And the third room, another beautifully decorated porch with ionic columns, was dedicated to Poseidon. So we have three personalities being honored there, right? Kekrops, Athena, Poseidon. And one story. So when Kekrops was the, let's say, the king of the region called Kekropia back then, he wanted to find the most suitable god to become the protectress of his city. And he has two candidates, Athena and Poseidon. Well, both of them had to offer a gift to the locals, and the locals would decide by voting over the best gift. So Poseidon takes his trident, he threw it on the ground, a big hole opened and seawater gushed out. Because he's the god of the sea. Exactly. It's a great gift to the Athenians, dominance over the sea, protection in the sea. But on the other hand, Athena very calmly kneels on the ground, she hits her spear and an olive tree sprouts. A peaceful gift, right? Symbol of agriculture and prosperity. So all men in the city voted over Poseidon's gift. <laughs> all women in the city voted over Athena's gift. And thankfully, women were more than men. And this is how Athena wins the competition. The city was named after her because of her gift. And at the Erechtheion now, we can see the olive tree. The olive tree, exactly. Not the mythical olive tree. No, maybe not. <laughs> but we can see the mythical hole in the roof still of the Erechtheion. Exactly. You can see the mythical hole on the porch where Poseidon is worshipped, deliberately left empty in order to mark the gift of the god. But the olive tree that the archaeologists planted 200 years ago It's on the exact same location that the ancient Athenians had their sacred olive tree. Through the hole in the Erechtheion roof where Poseidon's trident flew through the air, it struck the ground and we can see marks in the ground and a spring, is that right? There is a hole in the ground, yes, a big one, and there was a cistern underneath. So the ancient Athenians used to fill it with water seawater. And the amazing thing is that every time it's windy up there, and it's very often, (laughs) if you close your eyes, you hear the sound of the wind through the columns, but what you actually hear is the sound of the waves of the sea. And it's an illusion, but it works. (laughs) Danae, I'd like us now to take a quick wander down the slope of the Acropolis, to the last structure that I'm hoping we'll have a chat about today, the Theatre of Dionysius. And I do a terrible job at pronouncing that word. (laughs) Can you tell us why it holds such a significant place in the history of Western culture and something about the ancient Greeks who hung out there? Well, it's not just any theatre. It's the place where the notion of theatre was born. Dionysus was the god of wine, the god of drama, the god of theatre. So in this little corner of the earth, the Athenians decided to honour this god with religious festivals. Part of these festivals were the theatrical contests, the presentation of the tragedies and the comedies. And now think about it, the tragedy and the comedy 
are amongst the most influential literary inventions of Greece. Right? And it is there that tragedy and comedy as a genre is being given its definitive form always in a religious frame. A theater for the ancient Athenians was not only entertainment, but it was the best way to teach the society the stories of the gold, the heroes, the kings, their past, the values of life, and how to become and act as citizens. Important personalities, I just remind you, Aeschylus or uh, Sophocles, as Euripides, the three important tragedians, Aristophanes, the comedian. These people presented their work there. And in fact, what they did is that they formed Athenian and Greek literature. And they also recorded the myths and the stories I'm able to narrate to you today. So this little theatre down the slope of the Acropolis was in fact the birthplace of Western theatre. Exactly. So now for Athenians that go about their daily business down below the Acropolis, what does the Acropolis mean to them anymore? Do they care at all about the ancient buildings and the stories about the Greek gods and these epic battles going on up there, or is it all just ancient history? No, it's not at all just ancient history. (laughs) The names, the stories, the personalities, the values are still omnipresent in our culture. The Acropolis is in the center of the city. We live in the shade of the Acropolis. The hill was and still is a point of reference in our life. If you stand on the top of the Acropolis, you have the 360 view of Athens. That means that the whole city is arranged around it. That means that our lifestyle is arranged around it. In fact, it is the temples that give value to the city and we still think of them as being culturally sacred. They are eternal reminders of a level of excellence that modern Greeks are trying to reach. Do you and other Athenians feel proud about the legacy that your ancestors left the world? Obviously, yes. We are extremely proud that what happened in Greece between the 5th and the 4th century BC, and that is the Golden Age, changed the world history, and it's actually the cradle of Western civilization. Denai, if there's one tip you can leave our listeners about their next trip to the Acropolis of Athens, what would that be? Comfortable shoes, sunblock, water, hat, and curiosity. <laughs> The things that all travellers need anywhere, I think. (laughs) So there you have it, a quick dip into the lives of the gods and goddesses of Athens, a look at what those ancient playwrights got up to in the theatre of Dionysus, and some great tips about your next trip to the Acropolis of Athens. I'd like to thank the wonderful and knowledgeable storyteller and tour guide Danai Kosouris from Alternative Athens. You can read everything you need to know about visiting the Acropolis and maybe even book an alternative Athens mythology tour when you're there from the website tripanthropologist.com. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Trip Anthropologist podcast. I'm looking forward to our next adventure together when we'll travel thoughtfully to a new destination. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Trip Anthropologist. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast series so that you don't miss any further episodes. And please take a moment to leave a review of the podcast in the App Store. Begin planning your next trip now 
at tripanthropologist.com. And until next time, travel thoughtfully.